Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are talking about practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, and joining me from North Carolina is my co-host, Alicia T. Crosby. How you doing, Alicia? Hey, all. Oh, hey, Andre. I am doing relatively well, <laughs> um, but I'm really... <laughs> I'm really pumped about this. Yeah, it is. It is. Because <laughs> there's well and there's relatively well. It's like we try to be authentic around these parts. <laughs> um, but I can say with full gusto that I'm excited about this interview that we're going to be sharing with you this week. So this week's guest is Rob Lee, which may sound familiar to some of y'all. Um, and for others, that may be a new name. But... <laughs> Pretty much all of us know who Robert E. Lee is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, American history books and history classic classes um, don't spare detail in sharing about this Confederate general. Uh And so for this week of Hope and Hard Pills, we've actually um, interviewed one of his great, great multiply that nephews, um, (laughs) who's actually really dedicated to the work of anti-racism. Yes. so yeah, this is fascinating. Looking at a descendant from this Confederate general who is like really entrenched in like this work of anti-racism and anti-oppression. Anti-oppression, um, I think it's going to make for a really good conversation. Yeah, I was really excited to talk with Reverend Rob Lee because, well, for several reasons, but one reason is because sometimes we have this conversation about how it's white people's responsibility to confront white supremacy, and I feel like Rob is actually doing that in a very like clear way, like not many of us can say like my great, 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 or, you know, however many greats grandfather or grand uncle, like was a prominent Confederate general. And to see the way that he is confronting that legacy of white supremacy, I just thought it's very interesting and also pretty inspiring, especially when we talk about things like white guilt and, you know, generational uh stuff (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i i met rob at a martin luther king jr uh birthday celebration uh last year i think it was i think it was 2018 and um he spoke and next thing you know i saw him on mtv um and he 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 kind of left his church over his stance against white supremacy after the Charlottesville riot. So, I mean, I just had to talk to him. Okay, so we have been usually sending you to a song before the interview, but um, I've heard that cuffing season is over. It is. Cuffing season is over. We are in December. And for those of you who are celebrating the holidays with people who are not your boo things, you've let, the, you've let these other people go. So there is no song. There is no cuff. Because people are... Because you should be cuffed by now. Is that what you're saying? You said you people should, should be cuffed be by cuffed. now? You should be cuffed. And if like you are not in a place of wanting to commit to the cuff... <laughs> and you've let people go because otherwise you're gonna have to buy them holiday presents <laughs> that's right there are so many breakups this time of year because okay first yes. off there are a lot of en- there are a lot of engagements this time of year and there are a lot of breakups this time of year mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess people are trying to get out of buying christmas presents oh, i it wonder how many people sense. go 
I wonder how many people break up and get engaged this season. Like the like some people break up with who they're dating so that they can go and propose to someone else. <laughs> okay, that is trash. <laughs> that is trash ass behavior. <laughs> See, these are the oh, questions that no. go through my head, and I'm gonna end up like on some in some internet rabbit hole this tonight, trying to figure out like how many. No people... one's doing statistical work around this. I almost <laughs> promise you. Like, I will bet you a dollar. No one is doing statistical analysis on like breakup, makeup, engagement theory. Like, no, Andre. <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> Lord. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. Hi, Rob. How's it going? It's going. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm so glad that um, that you're on the show. I'm glad that we worked it out. You're here. I'm here. And I'm super excited to talk to you about your work and your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. So um, I actually, I first saw you um, at uh, Dr. King's birthday celebration. I think it was last year in 2018 when you spoke. And it was so compelling to me to hear about your story of uh, being a pastor, a descendant of one of the most famous Civil War Confederate generals, and that you're taking a stand against white supremacy and speaking up about that legacy. Then the next time I saw you was on MTV. (laughs) And um, I, I don't know, I just... When I when I thought about who should be in this conversation around anti-racism, I thought, oh, we've got to talk to Rob Lee because he he knows from a white person's perspective, from someone who can look into his family line and see people who um, fought for the Confederacy. Like, that's just a unique angle to speak from. So could you just share some of that story? Did you did you leave the church after you spoke up about white supremacy after Charlottesville? Well, I think one of the things that I I think about when it comes to being a Lee is um, I grew up, you know, going to D.C. and being in Arlington and seeing all that stuff, especially around July 4th um, when we're Mm -hmm. talking right now. And it was so amazing to see um, the history and the veneration of Robert E. Lee. So I've carried that name with me for some time. Mm -hmm. And then MTV called and said, we need you to use your name um, for a very particular purpose of calling out white supremacy. in our time. And I did that and it caused some backlash with the church and I ended up leaving and and, and leaving my post there. And that was really hard. And it's been a long two years of, of reckoning with that heritage and that lineage, but also with my reality of being a pastor and not having a church and trying to find my own way in this world where everything seems to be taken from you. But I'm also clear that it's pales in comparison um, to what people of color experience every day, whether that's mm-hmm. in the workplace or um, elsewhere. There, there is some real pain that is going on in our country that needs to be addressed and needs to be faced. Hmm. You mentioned, you know, uh, that you've carried that name your whole life. I'm, obviously, we all carry our names for most of our lives, but I don't think it even uh, really sat on me until you said that. And I wonder 
how how did you carry that legacy beforehand? Like, what was your relationship to, you know, that that whole part of your family history growing up? You know, every generation has to deal with their own history and their own lineage. But mine seems to be a little more um, pervasive and a little more uh, Mm. insidious. And so I've had to deal with the heritage of my ancestors in a way that not other people have had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really think about what does it mean to be a Lee in the 21st century? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I was proud. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was proud to be a Lee for this, for the fact that, you know, it's, it's a big part of our history yeah. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But as I've grown, as I've, I've learned, as I've sat with people that are important to me, like Dr. Bernice King, who uh, yeah. I met at the Martin Luther King celebration you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I've learned that names carry a weight that you yeah. can use for immense good yeah. or you can use for immense harm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I also think of the Iroquois tradition of the seventh generation principle, the idea mm-hmm. that our what we're doing now affects seven generations down the line. And I'm a, I'm a testament that that is true. What wow. Robert Lee did um, affected me and countless others. Um, mm-hmm. And so I have to kind of live with that and hold on to that, but also give voice to it. Because yeah. if I don't give voice to it, other people will. And yeah. that's really dangerous in the current climate that we live in and face as um, in this country, especially. Yeah. You know, as you say that, I think about the recent reparations hearing that happened in D.C. I was actually there in D.C. Uh, for the this, you know, this past meeting that they had, this hearing they had on reparations. And one of the things that a couple of the witnesses said was you know, no. And, and uh, Mitch McConnell said the day before, too, you know, is that no one, no one living today was around, you know, during the time of slavery or, you know, th- there's this whole notion in our country that these things are in our past. And I wonder how you like how you relate to these kinds of statements when you hear them on the news and and when people say them like what what do you think about when that when you hear that kind of thing? Well, I think about how we celebrate things like the American Revolution, and that's further removed from us than slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, we mark and commemorate events that happened two millennia ago every Sunday, mm-hmm. and yet we refuse to acknowledge an event that happened um, less than 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, one of the things I try and talk about in my talks that I give when I go across the country and talk about this stuff with, with anti-racism training is we never really killed Jim Crow mm. um, after the failed reconstruction. We just gave him a different name. Uh, <laughs> yes. We, you know, we, we call him something <laughs> else now. This is, the, this is the stuff that Mitch McConnell is engaged in. This is the stuff that people are engaged in when they say that it's our history and we need to ignore it or mm-hmm. we need to um, not reparate for the, the, the sins of the past. Um, we have to acknowledge our past if we want to get to a better future. Mm. And, you know, my seminary professor would say that history doesn't repeat itself. Well, I would argue that it does rhyme. Mm. The things mm-hmm. that we're experiencing today um, are reminiscent of what we experienced in the past. And that's really scary to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when we think about, you know, a couple of years ago, these folks that were marching the streets with the tiki torches in their hand and, you know, to defend like this this statue, you know, talk about living, talk about living in the past. Like America is always reaching back into its history, right? Well, like just, 
Yeah, sorry. The scary thing about that is like, you know, those kids were our age. You know, they weren't much older than than, than me. Mm-hmm. Were younger than me, and that's scary. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's scary in, in a way that we can't really fully comprehend because people are saying, oh, racism is dying. Racism is going to be dead. No, these were kids that were my age um, that were mm-hmm. marching in Charlottesville. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, so what do you think that we should do with that history? You know, like, I mean, obviously you've already pointed to, you know, we need to look at our history because it does inform our present and it does inform the future. But, you know, you have people who look at these monuments and go like, you're trying to erase our history and our culture. What what do you think we should do with these Confederate statues and these vestiges of the Confederacy? I mean, on this day, I don't know when we're going to air this, but on this day, you know, that people are arguing about the Betsy Ross version of the American yeah. flag. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what do we do with these symbols, do you think? Well, I look at it this way. Um, as a pastor, I see them as idolatrous. Mm-hmm. Um, because whether or not they were, you know, we can have this argument all day long to we're blue in the face about whether they were meant for commemoration of the Civil War dead or whatever. You know, we can have that argument if we want to. But ultimately, they've become idols of white supremacy. And so they need to come down, first of all, especially in public places that are um, facing and, you know, where people might vote. I mean, like, think about that. There, there's a place mm-hmm. in town where people, it's a polling station right down the street from a Confederate memorial. Mm-hmm. Think about what that says about our nation and where our right. values are. Right. And we value a statue more than we value the ballot. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. Um, yeah. That that's that's really pernicious behavior on the part of white Christians who claim yeah. to be, um, you know, well-off, well-meaning people who are yeah. more willing to fight for a statue or for the Confederate flag to fly than mm. they are for people to vote. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but I think that we need to hear more of this from white pulpits too, mm. um, progressive white pulpits, because ultimately the the pulpit is inherently political. And right. it's something that we have to face. I mean, if you look at the back through the history of our nation, some of the most, you know, awe-inspiring moments have come when preachers have stood up and said, you know, I have a dream or yeah. you know, stuff like that. They, they, they incorporated their theology into the public square. And so yeah. and it doesn't just have to be preachers. It can be lay people, too. I mean, there's plenty right. of stuff going on that we need to have an engaged uh, church and engaged mm-hmm. electorate and engaged mm-hmm. citizenry. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I think of uh, uh, Germany during World War II, and I think of how the church was so complicit with the Nazi party, but you also had, you know, Christians who were more in kind of a liberation strain, right? Like the confessing church, right? Yeah. And I think about, you know, that... Well, actually, I, I raised this to someone. Uh, he's uh, He works at Yale Divinity School, and his response to me was, well, you know, the presence, the presence of the confessing church didn't stop the Holocaust. And it, it, ever since we had that conversation, it just, it just has stuck with me. And so I keep mulling that over. So thank you for, you know, weighing in on that too. Like, I just keep mulling over, like, is, can, can better theologies, theologies that liberate people, um, faith that is focused on helping the widow and the orphan, um, can it can it be a kind of antidote, you know, to the faith that supports the status quo or that is oppressive and all that? And I don't know. 
I don't know. Well, you know, Sam Wells, who is the former dean of Duke Chapel and is now um, vicar at St. Martin's in the Pearl in Trafalgar Square, mm-hmm. um, he had this wonderful line that I loved. It says, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. Mm. Nothing about racism or xenophobia or the Holocaust can be happy. There is nothing happy about that. Right. Our response to it, how we wake up the next morning and pick up the pieces, um, how we stop it from happening in the first place and saying never again, that can mm. be beautiful. Um, yeah. I don't think we'll ever solve the problem of evil. Um, and if you yeah. do, we can write a really good book. <laughs> um, I, don't think, you know, I don't think people have tried, but I think yeah. our response can be really beautiful and really healthy to these evils that exist so that one day we can look back and say, you know what? We gave it our best. We did what we could. We right. have fought the good fight, you know? Mm. Yeah. Speaking of really good books, you recently released one, uh, A Sin by Another Name, Reckoning. Oh, gosh. I I just, okay, I'm going to get the subtitle right. A Sin by Another Name, Reckoning with Racism and the Heritage of the South. Tell us about the book. So the book is a memoir with a mission is what I called it in the book. Um, mm-hmm. It's an attempt to kind of reconcile my past with God's future. Um, because I grew up, um, even though my parents are very progressive people, um, mm-hmm. I grew up with them letting me form my own opinions about General Robert E. Lee, who was a distant uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really problematic thing for me later on as I grew up. And um, thank God for a, a few women of color who I talk about in the book who are courageous enough to give their time and talent and effort to help me see the problems that I faced as a Lee in the South. Mm. Um, and, you know, I want to say here that it's not incumbent upon people of color to help me fix my junk, but <laughs> thank God that they were willing to call me out and help me mm-hmm. see a beautiful reminder of who I am as a person beyond just my name. Um, so this book is that reckoning with that name and that legacy. Mm. Um, you know, down here in the South, we, you know, if I pull out my credit card at a, at a gas station or at a home improvement store, people will say the South will rise again when they see the name. Oh my um, gosh. It happens. People, again, people say racism's dead. That's not true at all. Um, you know, or it's dying. No, it's not. There are plenty of uh, people out here who are trying to, trying to bring it back or make it more obvious. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, this book isn't a love letter, but it's also a, a tough love letter. It's one yeah. saying that I'm not going to put up with, with, with the mess anymore. We've got to fix this. We've got to change ourselves to be better for a better tomorrow. Yeah. That is awesome. I, and also terrifying that people say oh, that yeah. to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so I have I have a question that I'm I think that some of our um, listeners will really appreciate. So half of the folks that that are already a part of our community, this is growing. About half of our folks are white. And so I get a lot of questions, you know, about helping white people. And like you said, you know, it's not incumbent upon people of color to do that. And yeah, I try to be helpful. But I also think that there's a certain there's a certain degree to where. I actually can't help white people be better people, right? Because in the same way that they can't get inside my experience, I may know a lot about being white from, 
you know, just growing up in a society where you're basically, you have to, you're, you need to know about being white. Everyone has to know about being white. But I still don't know what it's like to be identified as a white person. And so I thought I could ask you some of those questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, to, to your point, you know, white people have got to get our own people. You know, we, we can't yeah. just sit around and just pretend like it's going to happen. You know, we've got to get, we've got to do some work ourselves. Right, right, you know? right. So I'm wondering specifically, how do you deal with white guilt? Because, or have you dealt with it? I'm just assuming that you have. So, I mean, I don't even know that you have. But maybe you know others that do, because I, I do have one friend who, like you, he can trace, he can trace in his genealogy, like he knows, like a great uncle or something like that owned slaves or something. And I've seen him beat himself up over this a lot. And m- myself and other black, black and people of color that I know, like we just kind of freeze in that moment because I, I don't know how to comfort you, you know, and, well, you and it's not my job to comfort you, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so. So I'm not even going to try, but <laughs> so it's just like, I mean, good luck with that. So anyway, how do you deal with, how do you deal with white guilt? How do you talk to other white people about white guilt? Well, white guilt is the, um, is problematic, um, but it's also mm-hmm. a natural emotion. I think, I think for people who want to fix things like I do, um, yeah. it's very natural to feel this like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my family did this or mm. I I said that the way I said it earlier at dinner last night, you know, there's some real, um, there's some real emotional weight there that needs to be worked through. Um, so one, get a good therapist, uh, who you can pay to listen Mm -hmm. to your problems. But two, I think also recognize that white guilt pales in comparison to the pain and suffering that people of color go through every single day of their lives. Yeah. Because we make this white guilt into this big, grandiose problem. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. Mm-hmm. But the real reality of people suffering um, is different than guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we have to acknowledge the place that the guilt has. Yeah, I don't want to say it's unnatural because I don't think it is. But I think yeah. we have to acknowledge its natural place in um, our cultural conversation, but also in our personal and professional conversations as well. Mm. Because, you know, it's like, it's like a hierarchy, right? A hierarchy of guilt, you know, of needs and guilt and feelings, <laughs> you know, there's some real feelings that need to be addressed. Sure. Right. But they need to be addressed in the proper space and also in the proper context. Context yeah. in these conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, I think I already I think I already did. So if I already if this feels redundant, then Ross can just take it out. But no, you know, I think we already covered that because we, we've already talked about like folks who are like, well, I mean, I wasn't there. Like, it's not me. Like, it's the, yeah. the extreme defensiveness. Right. Well, they you know? benefit from systems, you know, even if they were even if their parents didn't parents, grandparents, you know, have a clean slate back to Adam and Eve themselves. They still benefit. <laughs> you know, they still benefit from systems, and that's something that we've got to address. Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, what are you up to these days? What are you working on now? Well, I have uh, worked and am working on a book on faith and mental health and how the church mm-hmm. can address that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it plays in well with this conversation because 
you know, I've been ex- had experiences when I was, uh, you know, um, hospitalized for my bipolar, where yeah. as a white person, I received better medical care than the people of color around me. And it was noticeable. Wow. Not only by me, but by the people of color in the room with me. Really? Um, what, like what, what kind of, can you give me an example? Well, I was at a, at a hospital when I was in seminary and the mm-hmm. seminary was attached to the hospital in the sense of they were, uh, you know, in the same organization. And um, the nurse came in and said, well, we take care of our own here since you're a student. And I got ahead of the rest of the the people that were waiting in line to get a hospital. Oh, wow. And they were all people of color. Now, you know, I can't, I don't think it was racist intent, but it certainly was racist in its effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because these people didn't go to Duke doesn't mean they don't deserve hospital care, um, right. before, you know, be, you know, after me. Um, so that was really hard for me. And something that I'm still processing with the book is how do we address um, you know, systemic racism in healthcare systems, systemic racism in mental health, um, mm. because you know, mental health, especially in the South, in, in, in impoverished counties, and even in urban centers, uh, is 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 bad. It's there's no mm. other word for it. It's just bad. So I'm hoping to address that, um, or at least scratch the surface in some of the book and talk about my own experience. But um, you know, I'm speaking across the country. Um, yeah. Doing a lot of good work, hopefully, um, you know, trying to dismantle some of the structures that have been in place for so long. Mm. I really appreciate that. Like as as you continue to share, I just hear this commitment in in your life to really work against those systems and structures that have not only affected you but disproportionately affect, affect Black people and people of color. And I feel like, and that's all, honestly one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I I know that this is something that you know, we say all the time is that it's white people's responsibility to confront white supremacy. Um, but it seems like, you know, a lot of people don't even know what the first step in doing that is. So, you know, just as as we wrap it up, I wonder if you could say to someone, you know, someone says to you, like, I'm a white person. I keep hearing that it's my responsibility. I care. I want to do something. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Where am I supposed to start? What would you say to them? I think the first step comes in an acknowledgement that you don't know it all because we spend our lives as white people thinking we have it figured out, Mm -hmm. thinking we know everything about everybody's experience because we're a lot like them. And we are a lot like you in some ways, but we're different too, not Mm -hmm. only in experience, but in feelings and, you know, we we're different and we have to acknowledge that difference as a gift and not as a curse. So mm. it comes in this willingness to say, you know what? I don't have it figured out. I'd like to listen. Mm. And then um, in time, you st- slowly start to gain vocabulary and the ability to speak to these issues, but also trying to remember that you're a lightning rod, um, not a, you know, not, not the center of attention. You're supposed to take the heat for other mm. people. You're not supposed to be the center of it all. Mm. Um, so I see ourselves, um, white people starting out as, as listeners, but also as lightning rods. Mm. Awesome. Well, where can people keep in, keep, uh, keep in touch with you and keep up with your work? Yeah. The best place to keep in touch with me is Twitter, um, at Rob Lee four. Um, <laughs> and then I, as I, as you mentioned, I have a book out now, which you can get it wherever books are sold. Um, and I'd love for you to check that out and then tell me what you think of it on Twitter as long as it's kind. 
<laughs> if you didn't like it, you can keep the opinion. No, I'm just kidding. No. Uh, <laughs> it was a of love, and I'd love to hear your opinion about it. <laughs> well, Rob, thanks so much again for taking some time to, to chat with me. This has been such a great conversation. Uh, if you're listening, remember to check out uh, Rob Lee's book, A Sin by Another Name. It's available everywhere books are sold. No, it doesn't have to be have to be this way doesn't have to be no doesn't have to be this way i mean as i shared with y'all before we enter this interview um it was an interesting one for me to have heard um and i hope the same is true for you because one of the biggest challenges i see um within social transformation work um especially with people with privilege and we'll like, you know, make this even more specific dealing with white folks. Um, if people wanted to distance themselves from what their ancestors or foreparents have done. And what's fascinating about Rob is like, that's actually the antithesis of what he's doing. Mm. He's really like leaning in and not even just interrogating like his past, but like, taking ownership of the way that it's benefited him as a white man in this country and mm-hmm. doing what he can to address it through his anti-racism work. And so I was grateful to see in real time, I mean, I've been following, you know, Reverend Rob Lee's um, work for a, a number of years now, but it was cool to see in real time. It's a part of our show, him owning like, oh no, wait, this is my heritage. This is my lineage. And I've got to wrestle with that. Mm. Um, and I don't know how often that happens. I mean, we, many of us out here deal (laughs) with non-famous or infamous, um, ancestors having done things that have very, have, have impacted the lives of people. And we don't do that wrestling, but here is, this man is doing not only a wrestling, but a wrestling with a famous ancestry and doing it publicly. Right. Um, yeah. So many, there's so many layers to that. Yeah. No, they absolutely are. I mean, so I think coming out of that interview, like that's the first thing that struck me is like, wow, he's doing this and he's doing this in public. And that can serve as a modeling for people who have to wrestle with the tensions of things that have happened in their families. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, especially because in my experience with talking with white people about racism, um, a lot of white Americans are running from the past. You know, they want to they want to just move past it. They want to just get over it. You know, mm-hmm. and um, here's someone who was looking it in the face. And I think that that mm-hmm. is such a I'm hoping that that would be an inspiring example for for the white folks that listen to this show <laughs> to mm-hmm. to have that kind of modeled for them in public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the reality is this isn't just our past. This is our present. So mm-hmm. part of how, you know. Many people got to know who who Rob Lee is is because of Charlottesville, which wasn't that long ago, y'all. This is like recent history. Yeah, when we were looking years at ago, right? two years ago, we're seeing people who are our age, and that's one thing that Rob like points out that like you know racism and white supremacy and desire and longing for Jim Crow. It's not like way back in yesteryear. It's in our faces now. And this is something that is a legacy carried out by people who are our age. Because we saw people sitting, you know, 
in Charlottesville, sitting in Charlottesville, Virginia, right? Like I've been to Charlottesville. It's a very quaint town, but mm-hmm. standing there with torches, like this isn't like, you know, the turn of the century in the 1900s. This was right. 2000 and what's that? 17? Yeah. 2017. 2017 where people out there with torches in angry mob fashion surrounding churches and surrounding people who are calling out for racial justice. Yeah. Yeah. It would generations in the past have seen it and like people our age and older and younger, right? Like people of all generations have had to stand to fight. And for us, for you listeners, some of that standing, some of that solidarity work is about you reckoning, about us reckoning with our past mm-hmm. and the past of of those who are a part of our familial lineages. Or sometimes mm-hmm. that's even outside of our family, but it's like another lineage that we find ourselves um affixed and attached to. Mm-hmm. And so this was like really like a rich um, episode for me. But like Rob mentioned something and like the, the he mentioned something that it made me think of something. Basically it made me think of generational responsibility. And that's what yeah. I feel like that Rob Lee like represents or what he's trying to engage in is generational responsibility. And he speaks, um, it was an indigenous principle that he raised. And like, I went like online looking for it, like after I'd heard it and uh-huh. found this quotation from Oren Lyons, um, who's a faith keeper of the turtle clan of the Seneca and Onondaga nations mm-hmm. that says the peacemaker taught us about the seven generations. He said, when you sit in council for the welfare of the people, you must not think of yourself or of your family, not even of your generation. He said, make your decisions on behalf of the seven generations coming mm. so that they may enjoy what you have today. Wow. And I mean, this is just, it's such wisdom, but it made me think about like seven generations from now, like the things that I do, the things that I commit to, what does it mean to live beyond myself mm. in the now in order yeah. for them to not just like enjoy things that I have, but to be able to take advantage of things that I haven't been able to take hold of myself. Right, right. And, you know, I think that Rob is definitely engaged in that work. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about these generations to come. Um, he understands, you know, the generational work that was done in the past that is maybe, not maybe, but has definitely unfairly benefited him, like him being someone who bears white privilege um, yeah. because of the white supremacy that his ancestor, like his personal ancestor, has like, you know, worked for. Mm-hmm. Um, but he understands that, like, he can do something different. and and work to write things so that people set over generations to come or generations to come we don't have to put a numeric um attachment on it but the people in the future have the ability to be able to experience something different to experience a different sort of reality yeah oh that's so powerful like because i think that oftentimes when we talk about this stuff it's like I can never know what, like, the person who's talking with me, what is really going on inside of them, right? But I can only go off of what they say. And the things that mm-hmm. are said often, though, make it sound like if we acknowledge this past, this history, this history that we've never fully ended or stopped, then, you know, I'll be pegged as a racist forever, right? Or a white supremacist forever or, you know, whatever. Like, if... If we say that, you know, you are someone who carries white privilege because of this, that, the other, you know, then that's all they'll ever be, you know? Mm-hmm. And what you said was so powerful is to think that, like, no, like, you can be, you can be the person in your family <laughs> that says, well, it stops with me, you know? We're going to do something different. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder what, like, what those things are, right? Like, when we reflect on our own histories, like, what are the things that we're going to say that it stops with me for? Mm. Like, I know that's, like, a really big question, and it's not something I expect, like, you to answer or me to answer in the immediacy, or even, like, you listeners, like, for y'all to answer, like, on the spot. But I think that that's something for us to consider. Like, what are the things that have happened in the past that are part of our lineages, a part of our heritages, that we say, say nah, like, this is, like, I'm not, I'm not going to let this go any further than me. Yeah. Like, it stops here. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that, like, I think both of us can relate to right like having backgrounds complicated backgrounds like with with ministry and how like we frame ourselves as ministers or not given the day but like faith is a thing that i know that i see and i know from our conversations that like you see that is it is political like when we look back at like you know sacred texts when we look back at like writings um and even just like the work that people have committed to over the millennia like Mm -hmm. and people who have identified themselves to be people of faith yeah, justice work is at the core of it for many folks. Um, yeah. And so one of the things that you brought up actually in the interview with Rob, Andre, is um, is somebody mentioned something to you about like Nazis and the role of the confessing church. Uh, yes. Yeah. Wait. Oh, I don't know. I, I mentioned that. You yeah, did. Okay. You did. Okay. Yes. All right. I'm gonna let you finish your question, though. Okay. It was just, it was really interesting to like, to see you bring that up because it's like, yeah, no, like there were people who had a faithful witness who were concerned about Nazism and the rise of fascism and the execution of Jews who were present at that time. And it didn't stop. Right. It didn't stop anything. Right. And that's like a hard thing to hold in tension. It's like, yeah, we're out here like working to give people hope, obviously, like alongside these hard pills. But like, <laughs> name drop. Well, um, but that's 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 a thing that we got to wrestle with. That's that's right. tense. I don't know that inviting Mr. Christian Racist into a theological conversation is actually going to be helpful because I don't think that Mr. Christian Racist is actually interested in theology. I think that at the end of the day, what Mr. Christian Racist is interested in is Donald Trump being president. And he'll take any story that he can, you know, grab onto to legitimate that that situation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I asked that question. So I brought that up uh, when, when I was talking with Rob is because I was in a conversation with a president of a seminary who brought up that that idea of the confessing church. I, I say all that to say, I don't actually know that much about what the confessing church actually did. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if they organized, I don't know if they tried to organize mass, you know, nonviolent struggle or, mm-hmm. or what they tried to do, or if they tried to stage a direct political intervention mm-hmm. um, against fascism and Nazism. I don't know that. So I will say that, um, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I'll say it this way. My hope, my belief in, our, in people power and in the power of strategic nonviolent struggle remains strong, whether it's faith-based or not. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that Christian communities, faith communities of any sort, that they have these... Um, they have these amazing resources to organize and mobilize people power if they'll use it wisely. 
But I don't know that like actually arguing theology alone with people who are using bad or toxic theology is, I don't know if that actually makes a difference. I mean, I also don't know if it's the best use of time, to be honest with you. It's like you sitting here, like, like, seriously, it's like you're sitting here, like, arguing over, like, theory when people are actually dying. Like, yeah. I think about the immense privilege that lies in that, right? To, like, be in a place where, where you can pontificate about the implications of whatever. And it's just like, no, like, Shorty <laughs> over there is, like, starving. Or, like, you know, to, to bring back some of that imagery that we were talking about in Charlottesville, they're marching with torches. Like... And surrounding places and people don't know if they're going to make it out of a place alive. So for us to sit here and talk about like, you know, blah, 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 sanctification and how that, what? (laughs) Like it it really, and it's not at all to, to, it's not at all, don't get me wrong, to minimize the role of theologies and unpacking theologies. But like, it's like, how do we unpack this? Um, When do we? (laughs) Um, and, and what also needs to be happening alongside this? Because, I mean, the thing that came up for me, like, thinking about, like, what you were sharing and, like, the conversation that you and Rob were having is whether or not better theologies are enough to create the world um, or create a world in which we're all truly free. Or do we need other tools and resources? And I don't mm-hmm. think that theology alone is it. Like, the way that we conceptualize God and the divine, that's not enough. I mean, I think it can play into something but there are other pieces of the puzzle that have to come into play. I'm just not 100% mm-hmm. too sure what all of those tools might be. Yeah. And maybe this is a conversation for another episode, but like, what's the goal? Do you try to get the, the perpetrators of religious violence to stop? Or are you more focused on those who are harmed by the religious violence to get them to a safe place and to have them experience restoration and healing? You know, and I'm assuming that it's it's definitely some kind of both and. Um, but yeah, that just is really interesting to me. The field itself is developing, even though the work has been happening like since forever. There are people who've been speaking about violences of different sorts, right? Like, so you have, you know, womanists who for the longest time were speaking about like, you know, the violences that took place like within like religious spaces, Um, you have like, you know, folks working towards like theologies and not even just theologies, but also like social phenomena from like a number of perspectives who've been talking about this. But like now there's like an emerging field. I mean, like it's only within the last like few years that we have something to describe some of like language, like in the health field, the mental health field to describe some of this. Mm -hmm. So like religious trauma syndrome is something that's being spoken about of more and more most of the conversations, and this is where I nerd out a little bit, most of the conversations are taking place in Europe. They're doing a little bit more work around that than we're doing here in the States. But there definitely are more people who are speaking about things like religious violence, sacramental shame. And they're coming right. from like different fields because it's, it's interdisciplinary in nature. So it's not just theologians who are doing this work. It's theologians and philosophers and sociologists and, you know, increasingly, you know, hopefully soon more political scientists who are who are going to be speaking about this because right. all of these things are working together to not only like impact cultures like within like religious spaces but like kind of more broadly like especially in the u.s context where like religion is as big as it is um right yeah like this is it's a cultural thing mm-hmm. and we have to address it but I think addressing in that term specifically um, could be an interesting one to 
to maybe exit on. I mean, we've talked about, you know, generational violences and like working to like do things in our immediacy to mm-hmm. be able to put future generations in a in a better position. But that requires us doing work, whether it is that we experience marginalization or we inhabit spaces of privilege. Um, and so two of my final questions to our listeners um, deal with that. So one is how are you working to acknowledge and address the guilt you deal with because of your privilege? Guilt is a thing that definitely came up in your conversation um, with Rob. And one of the things that you said, which I also hold to be true, is that as people of color and specifically Black folks, it's not our responsibility to help white people like wrestle with their guilt, but people do need to deal with their guilt in order to like continue to commit to the work of social transformation, because too often it, it, it's one of those things that cause people to stall out. So yeah, like how are folks working to acknowledge and address the guilt that they deal with because of their privileges? But conversely, those of us or maybe complexly, um, because you can occupy privilege and marginalization in the same personhood. But for those of us who are, do experience marginalization, how are you working to address and acknowledge the grief that you deal with because of said marginalization? I mean, these are difficult questions to like to wrestle through, but like I hope that you do this wrestling. And, you know, for those who experience you know privilege and and marginalization in the same body many of us do um like how are you wrestling you know with guilt and with grief because both of those things do come up for us so we know that we've left you with a lot to think about but thank you for joining us for another episode of the hope and hard pills podcast we look forward to connecting with you soon okay bye <laughs> really? <laughs> I cannot with you, Andre. <laughs> We're not living in your fantasy to see. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.